Hello and welcome to the Innovation Forum podcast for Friday 18th of February with me, Ian Welsh. We've got another bumper episode this week. Coming up is the latest in our series of conversations with the team from the Accountability Framework Initiative and their stakeholders. This time about challenges in the rubber sector. I spoke with Karen Steer, lead for the Accountability Framework on rubber, Stefano Sabi from the Global Platform for Sustainable Natural Rubber, Philip de Groot from plantation business Sockfin, and Anna Arce from tyre and rubber products company Bridgestone Americas. And in case you missed it, we have another chance to hear from Tesco's Anna Terrell and WWF's Sarah Wakefield about their collaboration on a fund for late-stage agriculture sector innovators. Plus, we have an update on the upcoming Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference from Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari. So stay listening for all of that. First, though, is some sustainable business news. Carbon Offset's technology platform CarbonPlace has been joined by three more banks, BNP Paribas, Standard Chartered and UBS, joining NatWest, Itau Unibanco, NAB and CIBC. Underpinned by blockchain, CarbonPlace is a settlement platform being developed to facilitate reliable, secure and scalable trading of high-integrity carbon credits. It's expected to be fully operational by the end of 2022. Once up and running, the platform is designed to provide robust settlement infrastructure for marketplaces and exchanges, encourage increased delivery of high-quality carbon credit projects and develop a strong ecosystem for the voluntary carbon market. On its website, CarbonPlace argues that the voluntary carbon market has a critical role in supporting the transition of companies to net zero emissions as part of their climate action strategies. Only credits verified under internationally agreed and science-based standards, including credits from Red Plus projects, will be listed on CarbonPlace. Global drinks giant Coca-Cola has announced plans to boost the share of its products that come in returnable or refillable containers from the current 16% to 25% by the end of the decade. The company had been asked in a shareholder resolution from activist group As You Sow and Green Century Capital Management to establish stronger refillable goals. As ever, definitions are important. Reusable packaging in this context refers to refillable or returnable glass and plastic bottles and also dispenser stations where consumers bring their own container. Coke's refillable and returnable rates vary significantly between markets. Returnable glass and refillable PET represents half of sales in 20 markets already. As highlighted by industry website Beverage.com, Coca-Cola has already some innovative schemes in place, including its so-called universal bottle that was introduced in 2018 in Brazil and then across a number of South American markets. This reusable PET bottle is used across Coke's brands. Customers return the bottle to point of sale and receive a discount on their next purchase. Bottles are stored by the retailer and returned to Coke, then cleaned and refilled with fresh branding. These bottles are used up to 25 times and have reduced plastic use by 90%, according to the Ellen MacArthur Foundation. The Brazilian soy sector continues to attract a great deal of attention. A new piece of research involving academics, Greenpeace's Unearthed and the Bureau of Investigative Journalism alleges that over 1,000 square kilometres of Amazon forest has been taken over by expanding farms between 2009 and 2019. The Amazon soy moratorium came into force in 2008, banning the sale of soy from deforested land. And researchers found that, while the moratorium had indeed halted the conversion of rainforest into soy, farmers were clearing the land to grow other crops and for cattle ranching. This allowed farmers to sell soy as deforestation-free, while in fact cutting down trees for other commodities. Allegations that the soy moratorium has been violated are of course nothing new. Some studies have linked over 1 million tonnes of soy in UK farmer supply chains to deforestation. Industry groups have called for the moratorium to be tightened with strengthened legal teeth to make it harder to get around. 
UK retailers are cancelling contracts with suppliers on the basis of ESG standards, according to new research from Barclays Corporate Banking. Over the period from January 2021 to January 2022, 21% of the UK's 302 largest retailers withdrew from arrangements with suppliers because products supplied were not meeting sustainability standards or down to poor staff labour conditions. Barclays concludes that increasing focus among investors, employees and consumers has driven supplier divestment decision-making. Another factor, the report says, is that the pandemic has focused attention on supply chain frailties and increased awareness of social inequalities more generally. The Innovation Forum's Spring Event Series will include conferences on responsible and ethical supply chains, the future of food and business action on climate change. All details of who is participating and how to register for tickets is available on the Innovation Forum website. The 2022 Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference will be from the 26th to the 28th of April. To find out the latest news about the event, earlier this week, I spoke with Innovation Forum's Hannah Halmari. Welcome, Hannah. Nice to talk to you again. So we've got the conference coming up very soon now. Any new panellists come on board? Hi, and yeah, we've had a number of great speakers agree to join us. So we'll be hearing from uh, speakers from Reformation, Mass Holdings, River Island, PVH, Dr. Martins, and many more. I know I say it's very soon, but the few weeks between now and the end of April will pass very quickly indeed. What are the emerging themes, Hannah, and the agenda? So as always, we'll be focusing on the biggest environmental and social issues facing the apparel industry. So over the three days, we have a number of focus sessions where we're looking at things like how we can scale circularity, uh, what regenerative apparel looks like in practice, how brands can reduce emissions towards net zero targets, and of course, how they can drive positive social impacts throughout the supply chain. Excellent. There's some really big issues that we'll be talking about for sure. What are the opportunities for listeners to get involved? So registration for the conference is still open. You can register online. And if you book your pass before next Friday, the 25th of February, you can save £100 on that. And we also do have a number of group booking discounts available. So if you will be booking as a group, please do feel free to reach out to me and I'll provide you with the correct discount codes. Okay, so that's important to remember. £100 discount for passes if you book before the 25th of February. Hannah, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ian. Rubber supply chains have been rather under the radar and I was very interested to find out more about the sustainability challenges for the sector when I spoke with Karen Steer, Manager at the Rainforest Alliance and Lead on Rubber for the Accountability Framework, Stefano Savi, Director of the Global Platform for Sustainable Natural Rubber, Philip de Groot, Head of Agronomy at Sockfin, and Anna Arce, Senior Manager for Corporate Sustainable Governance at Bridgestone Americas. The conversation was the most recent in Innovation Forum's ongoing series with the Accountability Framework. Certainly, compared with other commodities, such as palm oil or soy, the rubber sector has rather flown under the radar. But it is big business. Globally, more than 12 million tonnes of natural rubber is produced every year, generating $300 billion and supporting 40 million people directly and indirectly, primarily in Southeast Asia. A recent ZSL spot report into rubber supply chains identifies a number of risks from the expanding rubber sector, including deforestation, biodiversity loss, and impacts on water courses, as well as the sorts of social risks that are typically associated with agricultural commodities, such as labour rights and land tenure issues. And we'll be talking about some of these in more detail a little later on. To address these issues and more, the World Business Council for Sustainable Development established the Global Platform for Sustainable Natural Rubber in 2018. More recently, the GPSNR has been partnering with the Accountability Framework, focusing on developing best practice through real life on the ground examples. 
So joining me today to discuss all of this are Karen Steer, manager at the Rainforest Alliance and lead the accountability framework on rubber, Stefano Sabi, director of the global platform Sustainable Natural Rubber, Philip de Groot, head of agronomy for rubber at Sockfin, and Anna Arce, senior manager of corporate sustainability governance at Bridgestone Americas. Welcome to you all. Karen, let me turn to you first. Perhaps you can give us a brief introduction or a reminder about what the accountability framework is all about and then outline your work in the rubber sector and how you're working with the GPSNR. So the Accountability Framework Initiative, or AFI, is a coalition of leading environmental and human rights organizations that operate globally as well as in tropical commodity producing countries and they came together to advance a shared goal of making responsible agriculture and forestry supply chains the new normal. And we're doing this in two different ways. First, by providing the accountability framework itself, which is a clear and common roadmap for achieving responsible supply chains with regard to eliminating commodity-driven deforestation and ecosystem conversion, as well as full respect for human rights. It's a set of 12 core principles, guidance, and definitions for setting robust policy commitments, implementing them, and demonstrating progress on those commitments made. The framework reflects the consensus of the AFI coalition members, as well as international norms and expectations of buyers, stakeholders, and investors. And secondly, the coalition works together to promote uptake of the framework. And this is done by engaging directly with companies to adopt elements of the framework in their policies and practices. And then also by engaging with industry associations, multi-stakeholder and reporting platforms and other initiatives to embed the framework in their own policies and guidelines. And so these initiatives have looked to the accountability framework as a starting point for developing their own sets of requirements and guidance because the framework offers a solid reference for responsible supply chains that is recognized as accepted good practice and therefore allows the initiatives to proceed with greater confidence that their policies and guidelines reflect international norms. And also because it allows these initiatives to fast track their own processes by taking a lot of the deliberations and the wheel reinventing out of that policy development process so they can proceed more quickly from policy development to implementation. Um, and as an umbrella framework, it also enables all players to speak the same language and work off the same roadmap, which is really what we need in order to mainstream globally. So we were approached by the Global Platform for Sustainable Natural Rubber a few years ago as they were just starting to think about and develop their own policy framework that their member companies would need to follow. And organizations who are members of both GPSNR as well as the AFI coalition encouraged them to ground their policy in the AFI's core principles, definitions, and guidance. So after the GPSNR itself made that decision to look to the framework, we then closely engaged with them over a few year period to adapt the framework to be applied more specifically to the rubber sector and to fit what GPSNR calls its desired state for the natural rubber chain. And this has been a really great collaboration also for us because it takes the framework, which is a globally applicable for all commodities, and it contextualizes it for the rubber sector specifically. So that when we're approached by companies producing or sourcing rubber who are looking to use the framework, we can then point to the GPSNR for that guidance and support. Stefano then, 
perhaps you can give us a bit of introduction to the GPSNR. So what's the purpose of the organization and what's its scope? Yeah, GPSNR, as you mentioned before, was formed about three years ago now and voluntary membership international initiative Yeah, that brings together players around all the supply chain of natural rubber, from the smallholder producers to the processors, uh, manufacturers, and the end users of natural rubber, as well as the civil society organizations that are working in the natural rubber space to create a fair, equitable, and environmentally sound natural rubber value chain. We've worked with the last three years, starting with a handful of members, and now we have reached almost 150 members in GPSNR that are representing a staggering 50 plus percent of the market volume of natural rubber trading. So despite being quite a young organization, I would say that we have quite an important footprint, a good base of members that makes me think that we have a good potential in really giving it a good go at transforming the industry to become more sustainable. As Karen was mentioning, just now we have collaborated with AFI from the beginning, and I think it's helped us a lot in understanding how to work together with companies and with civil society organizations and understand what's the pathway towards a more sustainable value chain. AFI has helped us a lot with their pillars in uh, understanding that we need to first get companies and members to set commitments. And this is what we've worked on in the first years of GPSNR with what also Ken was mentioning, the development of our policy framework. And now companies that become members of GPSNR, they must produce within six months of joining the platform policies that are in line with this policy framework. That is a broad framework that includes requirements that uh, cover both environmental, social, and economic aspects of sustainability and natural rubber. Currently, GPSNR is working on basically the second step of the AFI pillars, if I can so call that. But the second part is implementation. And we are working on developing an implementation guidance for companies. And we've also worked this last year in producing and agreeing at our General Assembly on a set of reporting requirements that members will have to complete on an annual basis to report on progress towards achieving the commitments that they set up in their policies. So with that, we are trying to create now and and finalize our complete assurance model for GPSNR that will include a risk-based approach and measurements for monitoring and evaluation and systems to allow companies to make claims about the sustainability of natural rubber, which is something that is currently in the works within GPSNR. A lot of work with a lot of members, but hopefully we're going to have the ability of pulling all the reins in and getting this to be put into fruition to make real change in the supply chain. I mentioned some of these earlier, but for you, what characterizes the main risks for companies with rubber in their supply chain? Rubber is a very peculiar commodity. My experience, I've worked in other tropical agricultural commodities, and I think rubber is quite peculiar. And the reason why it's quite peculiar is because there's a cyclical trend in prices of natural rubber. This trend of prices influences what are the risks that appear in the production uses of natural rubber as a commodity. I'm saying this why, because when prices are high, as we've seen, for example, in the early 2010s, then there's a push for expansion. And when there's this push for expansion that is driven by the high prices, then the big risks are around deforestation, for example, and exploitation, land grabbing, for example, and all issues that are linked to new development, into new plantation developments. But in the last few years, prices have been quite low. 
And I think with this slump in prices, what we've seen is that one of the key risks that we are having is the livelihoods of the 85% of production of natural rubber that is coming from smallholders. So these smallholders' livelihoods have been at risk in the past years, and this is something that also we need to surely look into with the work of GPSNR. Together with this, there are, of course, risks that are linked to practices and linked to the operations. But I would say that the major risks that we find are the risks linked to environmental and social issues linked to the production of the commodity. And do you feel across the sector then, and thinking in downstream companies as well as upstream, is there a lack of awareness of these risks, do you think? Well, I wouldn't say that there's a lack of awareness of the risks. I think that companies on a company-by-company basis have done some work, some better, some less, in the past years to understand the risks and to put systems in place to mitigate these risks. I know uh, one of our members, Sockpin, is here, one of the key producers, and I know they've done a lot of work on this. But I think what has been lacking, actually, in the industry in the past years is a collective action in uh, understanding, uh, mitigating the risks that are systemic risks in the value chain. So when we speak about living wages, for example, when we speak about deforestation, these are risks that companies understand, but the companies have absolutely no opportunity to be able to resolve if they tackle them by themselves on a company-by-company basis. Uh, You can just imagine what it would mean if a single company decided to willingly pay living wages tomorrow. You will be probably out of business in a month if your peers don't take the same approach. The same is valid for deforestation. You can stop deforestation in an area and you can just cause deforestation in an other area because you're driving the prices of land up or, or down depending on how you're operating in the market. That's something that really GPSNR, I think, is well set to, uh, to find solutions for. Although, of course, this is a work that will take some time. We touched on these a little earlier, some of the benefits of your work with the accountability framework. How in particular then has the accountability framework helped with the creation of your policy framework, creating a credible policy framework? It's been incredibly useful. From the beginning, we understood that when you go at a table with an open negotiation, the worst thing you can have is to start from a blank page. And I think the accountability framework allowed us to instead start from a very solid initial draft, which was the key principles of the AFI. And the working group was working on this piece of work. You know, I had the benefit of collaborating with the staff at AFI, but also with the, some of the AFI members that were active in the GPS and our working group and getting that knowledge shared with all the companies and other actors and stakeholders that were working on this. Of course, that, that was one key benefit, having an initial draft of what we were looking at, but also it was very key to understand what were the civil society expectations on what is considered today the best level of standard and practices that you can have in the sector. And it was very clear that having a coalition of civil society organizations so prominent, such as the ones in AFI, was giving us a good understanding of what was that bar that we were willing to reach. I think it, was, it made it clearer for companies and it made it easier also to make the decision to agree on what the standard ended up being, which is our current GPS and our policy framework. And if I could just add something, one thing I learned from the process too is that using the accountability framework as a reference for setting policies, it's not just a cut and paste job. And we didn't enter it with that expectation of, oh, we've already done the work for you here, take it. And now it becomes the GPS in our policy. It really was a a solid starting point. And as Stefano said, it allowed them to begin the process, not with the blank piece of paper, to not have to focus on what certain definitions should be that are already very well recognized or what expectations around FPIC 
or having grievance mechanisms should be. You know, that part we were able to really fast track. And it allowed the working group through a really long period of time to come together and deliberate and reach consensus on some of those trickier issues that were specific to the rubber sector. And that was, I think, really important, not just in terms of contextualizing the framework, but also to get the internal and external buy-in that they needed for companies and others to be willing to adopt the commitments that they were making. Stefano, back with you. So how has alignment with EFI helped your members more broadly? We have a vast array of members in GPS now that come from very different experience. We have very large companies that have very many resources and a vast ability of dealing with sustainability issues. And this is one side of the spectrum. We also have companies that are smaller companies and then maybe are starting their sustainability journey. And I think what the AFI framework gave us is a solid ground to understand from all of these companies what are the expectations and what is the end goal in the journey. With the understanding of that, also starting creating a level of discussion within GPSNR that made us understand what were different perspectives from different actors and what are the different pathways that we need to start taking, both as a collective and on a company-by-company basis and on a stakeholder-by-stakeholder basis to achieve those goals that are set by the AFI. Everything is easier when you can see your destination. It makes it easier for you to start the journey, to understand where are your gaps, and also understand if you think that maybe it's not the time for you to start, you don't think you're comfortable because you think that the goals are too high, but you have peers on the side that are able to tell you, here you go, this is what I did. This is where I am in the journey, maybe a few meters ahead of you, but this is the journey that I've taken so far and you, you can do it as well. That was really helpful for all companies within GPS now. And I'd like to turn to Philip now. Philip de Groot um, from Sockfin. Sockfin, a company that develops and manages oil palm and rubber plantations in Africa and Southeast Asia. So Philip, why did Sockfin join the GPSNR? First of all, you mentioned that tropical agriculture is our core business. Our group has a long-standing experience in managing rubber and oil palm plantations in West and Central Africa and uh, Southeast Asia. It's an integrated group, so we are producing raw rubber and we are processing. So the first transformation, we are processing uh, not only our own rubber, but also rubber coming from third parties small farmers surrounding communities, about 50-50. And then our trading company is selling our processed rubber to customers worldwide. Now, the tire maker sector is by far the biggest market for our main grade of natural rubber. And the last few years, our customers were asking more questions on sustainability aspects of the supplied rubber. And joining GPSNR has enabled us to meet all those expectations, provide the data, and that would be a first reason. The second reason is that our group has always tried to produce palm oil and natural rubber in an environmentally and socially friendly manner. For instance, we have been reaching out to communities and helped those who were interested to create their own plantations. We provided technical support, but still sometimes probably we had it wrong. The approach was questioned by CSOs and we have learned over the last few years to communicate better, to better document what we are doing. And obviously we have to continuously improve our internal processes with the aim of being on the front runners also for sustainable natural rubbers. So that would be a second reason. For these reasons, when it was created GPSNR, we seized the opportunity and we helped shaping the platform as we both have the experience with RSPO because of the oil palm and we have extensive knowledge of the reality on the field in the rubber producing areas. In our case, it's predominantly Africa. 
So we think that we can positively contribute and that our views are valuable also for the platform. Let's think about some of the advantages for you then being involved in this collaborative platform. How does taking decisions as an industry, do you think, helps the sector streamline and standardise approach? Well, indeed, we are working within GPSNR with the whole sector. It's important if you want to develop a common set of principles and objectives. We are interacting with members at every level in the value chain within GPSNR. That will help us meet the expectations and also be realistic. It's a continuous process. Some members may be advancing at a faster pace than others. And so far, it's also been a learning process, including for myself. And I think for all participants, some hardly know how the latex is produced on the field or how a rubber tree would look like, whereas others, including myself, are learning permanently from the views of downstream actors, such as car maker companies. And then we have the CSOs. We discussed it earlier. I think their active involvement was initially a cause of concern for some members. But it definitely proves to be beneficial to provide some structure. We discussed about the AFI contributions and to make sure also that the policies and the reporting requirements, among others, that they will meet certain universal standards or the references. So the working groups, for example, they are consisting of members with different perspectives, different backgrounds operating at the various levels in the value chain. And I believe this is the proper format to ensure that the recommendations and the targets will be accepted to the biggest number of members across the value chain. Sometimes the discussions have been long, but the issues are usually resolved in a satisfactory manner. So you asked about standardization. Standardization, for me, it's a must. If we want to maximize the efficiency, we are in the upstream producers category. We are providing raw rubber to many customers. We are aiming for a uniform data and reporting system to avoid duplication, wasting time and energy. And I believe also downstream for customers and consumers, for example, a scoring system would greatly facilitate the interpretation or have an idea about the degree of sustainability in your supply chain. Would it make it easier to, to understand? You touched on this a little bit just now, but as in any organisation involving lots of different actors, there are going to be challenges. What have been the principal challenges that you face in your time as in SOCFIT and how have collectively these been resolved? Well, I would say for our category, since we started, there's some fear that the downstream categories being tyre makers or end users may try to shift the bulk and the burden of the responsibility to the raw rubber producers. That means the farmers big producers or small producers and the processes which are operating in the producing countries, which would obviously some be somehow paradoxical because one of the targets of the sustainability journey is to make sure that the workers in the rubber sector in these regions can make a decent living. But this is a brainstorming that is currently ongoing in a working group that is called Shared Responsibility. Members of our category and smallholders are now anxiously waiting to understand how customers and consumers will encourage more sustainable production and differentiate those producers that are complying with sustainable natural rubber standards from those who are not. So that has been and is still a challenge. Otherwise, I think we are discussing issues, learning, listening to the various perspectives, also accounting for the concerns or the constraints of other parties and then reaching agreements. I guess then that from your perspective, you'd recommend membership of the GPSNR to other companies involved in the upstream side of the sector. Yes, I believe that GPSNR as a multi-stakeholder platform will ultimately become the reference in natural rubber. 
as it is going. The platform is benefiting from active participation of all relevant actors in the natural supply chain. So that means for a company, it can either stand on the sideline and then jump on the train at a later stage, or rather join today and thus influence the process. And I think it's probably better to be involved earlier on as it allows starting to adjust your internal processes, policies, documentation, but also implementation, change some of your operational practices rather than catching up at a, at a later stage. Yes, so I do. Let me turn now to Anna from Bridgestone. Bridgestone, of course, the global tyres and rubber products business. So Anna, Bridgestone, you've been a member of GPSNR from the start. So what for Bridgestone have been the benefits of being a member? As you all said, Bridgestone has been a GPSNR member since day one, as all other tyre industry project members as well. I think part of the benefits of being a founding member is that it has allowed us to proactively have a role and a voice to represent one of the main natural rubber consumers in the world. So we have an important role to play and we are aware of that. So being part of GPSNR has been critical for our progress towards a more sustainable natural rubber as well. We're able to better understand the organization, I would I would say, from just the fact of being there from the beginning, we have the historical background, we understand better the members, the challenges that we're facing, how some of those working groups or those projects have evolved with time. And it comes handy, you know, to, to have all of that background being such a such a big player in such a huge organization as, as GPSNR. We have an active role in working groups, just to name a few. We have firsthand understanding of the needs to drive that sustainable natural rubber value chain. And as Stefano said before, no single company have, can fix it all. So being part of the group that aims to achieve the same goal is critical. I know we, we talked about the policy framework earlier, didn't we? The fact that GPSNR developed a policy framework. What's been Bridgestone's experiences of aligning with that framework? Well, the development of the framework was a reminder of how complex the natural supply chain is and the multiple ESG impact opportunities that we have to address, just to name a few, where we talk about the forestation, human rights, etc. The process for developing the policy framework allowed for healthy debate, I would say, and consideration from Bridgestone's perspective not only as a tire maker, but we have multiple hats. We're producers and processors ourselves. So we have a particular role within the platform. As the policy alignment process, I would say that this was a very unique opportunity for Bridgestone and GPSNR to align on industry best practices, contribute to stronger natural rubber industry expectations moving forward. There was definitely a back and forth between Bridgestone and GPSNR secretariat throughout, but the secretary was very responsive and supporting in, in, in this whole process. How have you found working in this multi-stakeholder environment? Philip mentioned a little bit about some of the potential conflicts between upstream and downstream. How have you found working in a multi-stakeholder environment has helped understanding the challenges for everybody rather than just you know, your little bit of the, of the supply chain? Definitely there's conflict, but also there's opportunities. I think uh, that the platform has allowed us to have visibility over aspects of the upstream or downstream that we probably didn't have before, right? It's a network with a robust list of members. It's that first connection, I would say, or firsthand connection that we have with some of those members 
the biggest value, I think, in my opinion, is the collaboration through the working groups and discussion sessions. Otherwise, I don't think that in a one-on-one scenario, we will get as much as we get from a group conversation. It's not one single company talking to another single company. It's a group representing a sector that represents the needs or the challenges or the opportunities for a bigger group. We listen, we consult with each member, we validate proposals, we define actions. And from the starting point, I think that the most important part of this is that the opinions of all the members are properly represented. So nothing here passes as a one sector initiative. Of course, there are differences. Of course, we have to improve our dialogue skills, I would say, and try to align and agree on certain things. But I think that's the beauty and the richness of a platform such as such as these. Right now, for example, I sit in the shared responsibility working group, as Philip mentioned before, and I think we have a huge challenge ahead of us and we need to properly represent the upstream and facilitate the, the resources, the strategies, the actions that will enable the rest of the value chain members to implement and execute um, sustainable practices that will definitely at the end help us achieve the, the main goal here. It's, it's a sustainable value chain for all. I asked Philip why he would recommend membership of the GPSNR to others in the upstream sector. Same question to you, in downstream sector, why would you recommend membership? I don't think I would only recommend it to tire makers, honestly speaking. I would recommend it to all supply chain actors because GPS and our mission to lead those improvements are beneficial for all. We definitely will see a benefit of it and as other tire makers will. But I think the beauty or the biggest gain is all members of value chain are properly represented. Benefits such as the network that we have, the possibility to impact the industry are the most valuable aspects to consider for me. I think standardization, speaking the same language, it's beneficial for execution, for implementation, that one individual company will have it more harder to do. I've got a question for everybody as we come towards the end of our discussion, and it's what should we be looking out for from the rubber sector in the next few months? Stefano, let me turn to you first. So what are you looking out for over the rest of 2022? First of all, I think it's been a couple of challenging years for everyone because of COVID. So my main hope for this year is that we manage to get that and the pandemic behind us. And we can really start having the work of GPSNR reaching the ground and starting implementation very close to, to getting that. We started, we have fully funded capacity building projects that will start in Indonesia, in Thailand, and in Cote d'Ivoire this year. Uh, we're looking at the implementation guidance being produced. So I hope that that will also help member companies start to work directly in their operation with the help of GPSNR. So yeah, from commitment to implementation is my hope for 2022. Philip, for you. Well, what I said earlier, to make significant progress in the discussions about shared responsibility, but also the assurance model. It's something that hasn't been finalized, so I think we have a lot of work on our plates. I think we made good progress despite the COVID, so we all started working through calls, but under the heading of Stefano and even the working group chairs, we still made good progress. But these would be the two ones I would choose to make good progress during 2022. Anna, same question to you. What are you looking out for over the course of this year? I agree with Philip with the assurance model. I definitely would like to have approval on the shared responsibility framework and see some progress in terms of the roadmap and immediate actions for all members. Karen, back to you. Perhaps more broadly, what are you looking for from the rubber sector this year? You know, just going back to what I said before that, you know, there's a really solid policy framework in place, but in order to turn it to implementation, it really does take the collaborative problem solving that is very apparent in the platform. 
And so I'm just looking forward to all of the various work streams and working groups within GPSNR to make the advances that they need to overcome the challenges around traceability and shared responsibility and all the other issues that were mentioned. And, I, and so I, I really think that this is going to be a great year for more collaboration and more work all along the supply chain to turn from just making commitments to actually doing good on them. And then I guess looking beyond rubber, particularly for downstream companies, rubber is generally not the only product that is in a car, a tire, a shoe, many of the other types of products that are being developed by companies who are members within GPSNR. One of my hopes is that they look not just at setting and implementing commitments for their rubber operations, producing and sourcing, but also at a more corporate level to look at all the other commodities. For example, it was referenced palm oil or soy or whatever some of these other companies are also working in that they have commitments across all of their supply chains and all of the commodities that they're using. Thanks everyone. It's been a fascinating conversation and thank you very much for all your insights. Perhaps we can come back and have the conversation again in a year's time when we can see where we got to. But for now, my thanks to Karen, to Stefano, to Philip and to Anna. Thanks so much indeed. Transforming the food system and overcoming the many environmental challenges it faces will require innovation at scale, with food production responsible for around a quarter of all greenhouse gas emissions and at the centre of many other environmental issues, Tesco and WWF have come together in an innovation fund project designed to half the environmental impact of the average UK shopping basket. And so, in case any food innovators have missed it, coming up now is a conversation my colleague Toby Webb had recently all about this new collaboration. My name is Toby Webb and I'm delighted that joining me in this podcast are Sarah Wakefield from WWF and Anna Terrell from Tesco and we're here to talk about their innovation fund which sounds very interesting. We hear a lot about companies and innovation funds over the last few years. This is a particularly interesting one because there's a call to action at the end and some practical outcomes which we're going to be discussing. So looking forward to hearing about it. Anna, let me turn to you first. Just tell us briefly who you are and why is Tesco wanting to work with WWF on this fund? Thanks, Toby. I head up the environment team at Tesco. We are very much focused on various different environmental sustainability agendas and ensuring the long-term sustainability of the products that we sell to our customers. What's really nice about this particular initiative is that it's really about how we can bring together the networks of our suppliers and supply chains to actually start to work together to tackle systemic issues within our agricultural supply chains, issues that are really knotty and that we all face in some form or another. The intention of the Innovation Fund, which is a collaboration with WWF through our partnership with the organization, is really designed to get innovative ideas, innovative thinkers and doers together to come up with solutions to some of these systemic agricultural challenges we face. Well, we'll get into some of the specifics of that in a minute. But Sarah, over to you for a bit of self-introduction and tell us why WWF wants to take part in something like this. I... I'm the head of food transformation at WWF UK, and I lead our work into the food industry in translating what, from a science and nature perspective, WWF thinks the food industry needs to do to make sure we reverse the loss of nature. And as part of that, it's my real pleasure to work with Anna and the team at Tesco on the WWF partnership. And something we're really passionate about in the partnership 
is bringing some of the science that we know is out there to life in the supply chain so we can start to tackle the issues that are the ones that are hardest so we can really start driving the changes we want to see. Well, sticking with you for a moment, you've seen a fair few of these funds being launched. What I like about this one is you've got a really specific set of focuses or foci. So tell us a bit more about that. What are you trying to achieve in the next six to 12 months or so on this project? We have definitely been trying to take the learnings from many organisations, including our own, where we have been putting focuses into innovation. And we determined that having that very narrow look at some of the key issues in agriculture would probably get us to the outcomes we would want. So in this case, we're really looking and drilling down into emissions associated with animal feed and fertiliser. And that is because we know that some of the key hotspot areas for greenhouse gas emissions and some of the hardest to tackle are within agriculture. And I'm sure we all have heard about some of the really exciting technologies that are out there and available, but a lot of them haven't had the chance to be tested in a commercial setting. They've only been tested in that test environment. And so what we really want to do with this fund is give some of those existing innovators the chance not just to receive some financial support, but also the opportunity to work with Tesco's supply chain to see what happens in practice when we put those technologies to the test. And that's what we're really excited about. It's about how we can scale up some of those really exciting things that we hope are going to make a big difference in the fight against climate change. Anna, back to you. What benefits for Tesco's objectives, business strategy will focusing on these areas of animal feed and fertilizer bring? Clearly, retailers are under pressure on soy and its role in animal feed. But what do you want this fund to deliver in terms of solving that problem and providing some opportunities? I think first and foremost, it's about proving that we can actually bring together innovators with suppliers in our supply chain to actually find new ways of working together to Sarah's point, to address some of these issues and really test them in a real life situation and environment. And if we can do that and prove that, then we can actually look to scale it. And the challenge, as we know, is the scalability of the solutions that are coming into the market. Now, when you look at supply chains such as those of Tesco's, we have tens of thousands of farmers in our supply chain. We have thousands of suppliers globally. So to be able to test and learn and innovate together with the right partners and understand what works and what doesn't work and then take that learning and share it across those global supply chains with those suppliers and those farmers. Actually, what we can do is we can start to build up that knowledge across the network and that's really important. And the other thing to say is back to the emissions focus, 90% of our total group emissions sit in scope three, of which a lot are agricultural based. And so by zoning in on very specific innovations within our agricultural supply chain, such as fertilizer, such as looking at alternative feed, then we can not only reduce our footprint, but again, share that learning with wider industry so that we can actually have a bit of a knock-on effect. So this is really about wanting to test, learn, innovate, and share that knowledge and learning with wider industry because the food industry at large, we know is such a major contributor, not only to emissions, 
but also the environmental impact it has. Yes, the stat you see bandied around a lot, particularly around COP, was sort of 30% when they bundled together agriculture and land use change and forests. I never quite understand why it all gets bundled together in quite that way. But nevertheless, the impact and the pressures are significant. Sarah, who are you looking for then to come to you and Tesco to take part in this? Organisations that have existing innovations, existing products that are ready to go and ready to be tested within another supply chain. Organisations who have been working hard on finding solutions to the issues that we've laid out. If you have something but you want to see it tested on a bigger scale or in a different space, those are the kind of organisations we're really looking for. And of course, to any of Tesco's suppliers who might be listening to this podcast too, we ultimately want to match those innovators with members of Tesco's supply base. So that will be the second phase of what we are doing. If you are a supplier and you've got a really great idea that you've been sat on, but have been scratching your head about how to make it happen, this is a really good opportunity to come forward with that as well. We are really excited about who might be out there. What sort of expectations do you have of those who might come forward for this? Some of these startups are often a couple of people in a laptop. Some of them have gone and got millions in investment. What sort of stage do you want those coming forward to be at? It goes back to what Sarah was saying earlier. What we want is an oven-ready solution, so something that's ready for the market and that we can actually apply in practice within the supply chain. You could be a one-person band. You could be something considerably larger. We're really not looking at the size and the nature of the organization or the initiative. Rather, we're really focusing in on what is the solution and how can we actually run with it, test and learn within our supply chains. So we need something more than a concept, uh, something that can be put into action fairly quickly then. So Sarah, what are you looking for from those who are listening to this podcast who think, oh, actually, we might have a solution for that. What's the process for those listening who want to get involved? At the bottom of the podcast link, there will be a website link where you can go and find all the um, information about the innovation fund and the money available and the process. There'll also be an application process. So you'll be able to put some details about your organization, about the solution. And then once we've got that, we're going to collate them all together. And we're going to go through a process of finding out if there is a Tesco supplier who would be ready to implement that innovation in their supply chain. So that's the kind of matchmaking process. But yeah, as a first step, click on the website and submit your application. Um, just to be clear, this is all happening in the next three or four, six months or so, is that right? Absolutely, Toby, yes. As this podcast will be going out, the application processes will be opening and then they'll be open for six to eight weeks and then we'll be doing the shortlisting and we are looking to award the, the funds in April, May and then put it straight into action in the supply base. We are really hoping to, by this time next year, have had live action in the supply chain for at least six months. Maybe we can even come back and talk about some of the results then. So yeah, this is all happening soon. We know we need to motor on with some of these solutions.
Excellent. Well, thank you both. There you have it, audience. If you know anyone or you're working in practical solutions for alternatives to animal feed or artificial fertilizer, you know what to do. We shall be covering this in more depth later in the year. Obviously, our Future of Food conferences are very much focused on innovation, and we look forward to trying to help get the message out there about workable solutions as they take hold in the supply chain. So this is going to be a fascinating next six months or a year or so to see which solutions we can aid in their deployment. So thank you both for your time today. Listeners, thanks for yours. And do check back for more podcasts soon. Thank you, everyone. And there is indeed a link to the Tesco and WWF Sustainability Innovation Fund website in the podcast description. The Innovation Forum website is, as ever, the place to go for all the analysis and interviews. And don't forget also to take advantage of the £100 discount available now to register for the Sustainable Apparel and Textiles Conference in April. Everything you need to know about this and all of the Innovation Forum Spring Event Series is available online. But that's it for now. I've been Ian Welsh, and until next week, goodbye.